Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary Media with me, Russell Brand. This week I spoke to Tommy Rosen. Tommy Rosen is a certified vinyasa flow and kundalini yoga teacher. He's one of the pioneers in the field of yoga and recovery, assisting others to holistically transcend addictions of all kinds. He's currently 28 years in recovery. It was a fantastic conversation that we had. He really gave some insights on the idea of ayahuasca in recovery that surprised me and were interesting some of the best in perspectives i've heard on that subject talk lucidly fluidly on codependency an excellent teacher it was a fantastic interview before we get into some other stuff let me let let me tell you i'm coming to australia new zealand and canada with my new show recovery live in february march and april tickets are on sale right now go to russellbrown.com for tickets you will not be disappointed also if you're in the la area on the 8th of february i'm speaking at the conscious life expo it's an expo and it's on conscious life there'll be like my recovery live show is there and also i'm doing a, a workshop if you're interested in that you may also want to come to Santa Barbara on the 12th of February. Imagine seeing me there in Santa Barbara. It's such a beautiful city. I'm in the I'm at the California Jam in Costa Mesa on the 14th of February and in San Diego on the 19th of February. Tickets for all of these are at russellbrand.com. Go and look at that and come. Make sure to sign up to my mailing list at russellbrand.com to be told first about any new shows I'll be touring and gain exclusive mailing list only access to pre-sale tickets, but also get a lot of information and get access to these communities communities that we are building around awakening look at my youtube channel to get more spiritual videos and clips for absolutely free although you will be subjected to some advertising i mean that's the way these things work and make sure you subscribe to that and get notified of uh, new videos let's have a look at some of the stuff from the zaya tong episode that we just put out sasha nagy says rusty rocket zaya tong here luminary you are changing the way i look at the world and i'm so grateful and rusty rockets is real I am real. Well, mostly real. Um, I mean, some of me is my own imagination. D.D. Winfrey, I'm an organic farmer. I'm very much aware of the big corporate Coke Brothers farms. They pollute our planet. Unfortunately, they are my neighbours. Oh, A commercial poultry plant and thousands of acres of GMO crops being sprayed with herbicides and pesticides, all within walking distance of my farm in Delano, Tennessee. Between them and the paper bleaching plant, they've polluted Hiawassee River so much that we aren't allowed to fish there. I miss the days of your local farmer. They were nice people. Goodbye, beautiful planet. Dee, don't be down and pessimistic. We'll sort all this out. The organs for revolution exist even as the ashes appear of the old system. Don't be alarmed. Just stay conscious, stay connected. The solutions are coming. Jeremy Menning, surveillance state motto, cameras for thee, but not for me. <laughs> why are you doing their mottos for them? And so why is it such a sort of old English motto? And some cameras for thee, but not for me, and also some mead for thee and thine. Right, so if you want to get... Anyway, that's a good... I'm not taking the piss, Jeremy. I'm glad you contributed. So, um, listen, get in touch on social media. Let me know what you think. At Russell Rockets, hashtag under the skin. At Russell Brand on Instagram, on TikTok. I'm at Russell Brand, LinkedIn, Russell Brand. But now it is truly time for Under the Skin with me and Tommy Rosen. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful that, route. Yes, that's, that, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand. Under the skin.
Tommy, thank you for doing Under the Skin. It's so lovely to speak to you in a formalized way. I am thrilled and delighted at every level. Thanks for having me. I want to talk to you because obviously you've got 24 years clean and sober in recovery. A big part of your recovery is yoga and meditation. You're a yoga teacher. I've become aware of your work years ago, what you do with recovery point two i'm not sure if i'm putting the decimal point in the right place is it 2.0 mm-hmm. i never know because of sometimes movie sa- franchises the decimal point can drift <laughs> but if it's 2.0 uh, i i love that uh, i i love the stuff that you do and i think it's significant and it's certainly an influence on the way that i, I see recovery thank you what's our little journey now tommy what's what are you focusing on in your personal recovery and on your in your teaching mm. so in my personal recovery Actually, I'm 28 years Oh, sober. wow. You've been robbed of four years. That's pretty brutal. You robbed me of four years. But... It's a whole Olympic cycle <laughs> and a World it's, Cup. It's a leap year. <laughs> yeah, forgive me. 28 years. That's even more remarkable. Quite all right. Yes. So in my personal recovery, it it, uh, it comes down really to rituals and, and routines, as always. Uh, that's the story. It's, so it's uh, specific things that we do and repeat each day to continue to... Be centered, to be on point, to keep the wolves at bay, hmm. as it were. What do you do? Uh, it begins with a morning practice. So the, the the word that we would use for that is sadhana. And so each day, waking up, there's a physical aspect of it. There's a uh, 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 expressive aspect of it, maybe singing or chanting. And there's hmm. a meditative aspect to it. When, what time do you get up? About five. Get up at five, yeah. and you don't go to a class or anything because you're a teacher. So you just teach you teach you some yoga. Yes, I'm I'm receiving the yoga. Huh. Yes. So um, you, what's the order? So I'll begin always with physical movement. Um, so first, move the body. Uh, I have a lot of energy in this body. A lot of prana flowing through this body makes it very difficult to sit still. Yeah. I was always one of those kids that you know, and and human beings, I could just never sit still to meditate. I couldn't get still. So people would say, you know, why don't you just sit still? Why don't you try meditation? I never had a way to do that until somebody showed me certain kinds of movements that could get the the restlessness out of my body and allow me to be still. And in that stillness, something very special takes place. And, and we begin each day from there. First, some physical movement. After which, some meditation, then some chanting, or the other way around? It depends. Uh, it could go either way. Uh, I do like to end uh, in the most subtle place, and the most subtle place would be silent. Mm. But chanting mm. is incredibly powerful. Um, a lot of people who might be listening to this or watching this might think, you know, chanting, that's weird. I've, I'm never going to do that in my life. I need to let you know I'm from New York City. I come from a very cynical uh, perspective. I like everything to be proven to me first before I accept it. And the fact that I chant every day is testimony to its power and what it's done for me. It has been a transformative thing. So now your life and your day is built around various forms of spiritual practices, rituals, you called them. But presumably prior to coming in recovery, these were not the methods and techniques you were using to mediate your feelings and emotions. What was your... (laughs) What what was your life like when you were drinking and using? Well put. Well, uh, rituals always. <laughs> rituals always. Uh, just rituals that would be self-harming and destructive. Although at the beginning of those rituals, when I was 13 and started to do drugs, started to smoke cannabis and 
later on, shortly later on, started to get into psychedelic drug experiences quite a bit. Um, at the beginning, there's more of an exploratory theme to it. Um, I do want something different than what I'm experiencing. So there is that tendency towards escapism. But it's more of uh, a youthful exuberance to try something new. I never wanted to obliterate myself into unfeeling. That really was never my thing. I was very interested in experiencing something new and different. So at the beginning, there's a ritual uh, involved in the way that I would, you know, or anybody would smoke cannabis or uh, relate to other people who would smoke cannabis. You know, we back in the day, we used to actually take seeds out of our cannabis, if you can imagine the that. And we'd have a, an album cover, you know, and we'd do all that in there. And then there was fire involved. And so there was chemistry involved and there was a whole thing involved. And it, it really broke through the the, the mundane and, and uh, mediocre nature of what we were experiencing. So we wanted something exciting. Yeah. Hmm. I, I, did you have, were you framing it like that when it was happening? Were you seeing this as ritual? I suppose to be thinking about my own drug use, even though I can retrospectively recognize that I was reaching for something beyond the experiences I was receiving domestically, familiarly, socially, culturally, I was sort of bored and felt disconnected. And this isn't reality. I know there's something else. Or as Bob Dylan said, I was born a long way from home and it took me, it's a long journey back, you know, like, but while I was doing it, the sort of framework and culture and language I was taking on was about just like, oh, this might work then counterculture drugs whatever art poetry self-destruction annihilation sex all of these things were taken obviously i don't know not with an awareness that what I'm, that they may have been approximate approximations of the real experience mm. i had no sense of that uh what i had a sense of was very in the moment i feel a release i feel less anger the things that would block me from just getting to just be in any given day were removed. And all of a sudden, I felt more like I could just be me. This was the closest thing that I had ever felt to, well, relaxation. Or I tell people when I first smoked cannabis, it was the first time I really felt like I took a deep breath in my life. There had never been a that sense of, my God, I'm relaxed. Everything's okay. I'm okay. There's a place I could fit in in this world. There are other people that could fit into this place with me. The loneliness and the sort of awkwardness that I felt as a kid were immediately alleviated. And maybe most importantly, my very, very busy mind was calmed. Yes. What was that like, that loneliness and awkwardness? Mm. That's, that really hits at the core of what I consider to be the original addiction uh, for most of us. In human form, we experience codependency first. We experience a disconnection in relationship to ourself or our body. We experience a disconnection in relationship to others, our parents, our siblings, our family, our friendships, uh, there for me and many, many, many people I've spoken to on this path of recovery from addiction will relate to me that before drugs and alcohol ever came in the picture, there was this sense of skewed relationship that where I end and someone else begins. I, I can't quite get a hold of myself. I'm not sure 
what it's like to be me comfortable in my skin because I've actually never felt it. I've always been chasing something. And I originally chased it through approval uh, of anybody. And eventually, certainly, uh, as I reached uh, adolescence, you know, women and sex became a place that I would look to for sure for approval and a sense of self-worth. It goes back to this child's book. Uh, you know, you remember the book? I think you might have seen it. Are You My Mother? There's a little birdie that gets hatched out of this egg. Its mother's not anywhere around, so it's, it wanders the landscape looking for its mother. Are you my mother? Are you my mother? Are you my mother? And for me, that hits very, very close to home, to that codependent piece of maybe you could solve this problem that I have, even though I can't define to you exactly what the problem is that I have. One of my uh, mentors that I very much admire has got like 40 years abstinent and he's like a sort of a troll-like moss-covered rock of a man, Welsh and sort of intense and grounded, has a sort of a tendency to come out with these bullet-like aphorisms of truth. One of them that he hit me with not so long ago when I was saying, but, but the craving, the craving, like you know, that, that for whether it's for our sex or approval, the, the, the wanting something to encompass and envelop me and to lose myself in something... And he sort of stopped me in the midst of this tirade and went, Mummy isn't coming. (laughs) Bingo. (laughs) And I thought of like that, this original state that you're describing where there is this sort of intermittent but somewhat reliable relationship with a mother or other, some caregiver. And then as you grow, you realize that that isn't God, that you are beyond it. And this journey of separation, individuation can be a difficult one. And for me, sort of, I had to be expedited by sort of chemicals and self-harm and stuff. Exactly. And one of the reasons I think that's such an important through line is it follows all the way, of course, into recovery. It's not as if someone takes drugs and alcohol out of their life. Maybe you're 20 if you're fortunate to stop at that age or you're 30, 40, 50, 60, whenever you put it down. I think people have this sense of, well, now that I've put alcohol and drugs down, things will be so much better. Things are so much better because you're sleeping, because you're eating, and the the general fundamentals of life come back and you start to feel physically better, of course. But the deep psychological reasons why you got off track in the first place have not yet been dealt with. No matter how much cannabis, no matter how many psychedelic experiences I had, and I, and I wouldn't sit here and say that they were negative, They were beautiful, wonderful experiences that served a purpose at that moment in time, but they didn't solve the problem. And so when I put drugs and alcohol down, the through line into recovery is, oh, my core issue has followed me here. I haven't fully done the work yet of resolving that. So even in recovery, as we we know, people will, uh, they'll call it exchanging one addiction for another. But we know that we're just in the same thing. It's just the same thing. Now we're looking to food or we're looking to women or, or sex and we're looking to some form of drama or acting out to take the place of what drugs and alcohol were doing for us when we had it. So the question is, is how can we heal, truly heal, truly recover and heal that deeper piece of codependency and become fully integrated within ourselves and to get to be free? 
So what were your first experiences of that? And obviously, now, you know, before you became Tommy Rose and Radiant Guru, <laughs> what were your, what were your, what were the progressive steps where you think, where you start, started to recognize, oh, hang on a minute. Now that I've taken the drugs out, I feel these feelings. How did you re-experience sort of codependency? And, and then obviously I want to hear some solution. Yes. Incredible, incredible pain and suffering is I'm not coming to. At this point in my life, we're talking about I'm 35 years old, 30 to 35 years old at that point, and I'm reaching what I would call a codependent bottom. I'm nine years sober from drugs and alcohol, from drug and alcohol abuse. That's that's nine years removed from my life. I'm showing up at 12-step meetings as if I have my game together. I'm presenting myself as somebody who's nine years sober. Wow, wow, you know. Um, and inside, at that time, I really was dying. Uh, I didn't have an answer to the pain and the suffering that I was feeling. I was, it was manifesting in a, in a relationship I got into with this unfortunate person who had to <laughs> encounter me at that time in my life. And it, I, I woke up, I, I lived, and I went to bed with this person psychotically, neurotically on my mind all the time. Couldn't, couldn't let it go. It was as much pain and suffering as I had ever felt through abject heroin and cocaine addiction. It was that painful. I, I didn't have a solution because uh, at that point, I hadn't been given uh, a teaching or a teacher that could solve that deeper problem. Curious. Was it event when you talk about codependence like that? I recognize it. I've been in lots of relationships that, you know, where I'm sure that, I, you know, where I know that I wasn't good for that person, that person wasn't good for me. They were quite eventful situations, sort of scored by, sort of, say, conflict, hysteria on both sides. You know, like it can be, those are very difficult times. Is that what that relationship was like for you? Or was it just, was it in your mind or was there actual, oh my God, this person's cheating on me? I don't know what to do, or, you know? Drama. Yeah, drama. Incredible drama. Uh, it was, it was, marked by drama and oh I, i'd be the first to tell you that you know i set it up beautifully uh with you know uh, a considerable dose of dishonesty so that i brought that into it well you sort of led them to believe that you were someone that you weren't sort of thing. It, it wasn't anything so conscious it was more like i set up a relationship and told somebody based on my past i said quite honestly i don't think i'm capable of truly being in a loving relationship I'm going to tell you that up front. And if you want to be with me, you're going to be with me under those circumstances. Because I think I'm broken and I don't know how to fix me, but I really enjoy hanging out with you. The person would say, well, okay, we'll sort of, you know, give it a run, but I'm assuming that you're going to be with me and me alone. And that's sort of where the rub comes in. So that if you have spent your lifetime building your self-esteem based upon how a woman would see you and based upon your ability to hunt and gather sexual experiences. Now you're in a monogamous, monogamous relationship with somebody. You only have one access point to that same self-esteem that you've been seeking in multiple places for your whole lifetime. But now this person is saying, no, you're going to get that just from me and me alone. What this person, of course, doesn't realize and what I don't realize is I'm not healed at that moment to be able to handle a monogamous relationship because I'm still looking for a sense of myself in other. And it's going to be painful. I didn't know how painful. 
this person found out that I had been dishonest after about a year of us being together. By this point, I had truly, really actually fallen in love with her. So there were deep-seated emotions that intertwined with a sense that I had ruined the relationship through my own dishonesty. And I entered a situation where I decided to put all of my energy towards getting her back, getting her trust back. If, if this could work out, then I could be whole again. And you see, I entered a very, very painful, uh, addictive dynamic. Yeah, that's a real project you gave yourself real there, project. Tommy. Because <laughs> like, um, like, well, it's interesting to have been introduced to the, like, we, we're fortunate, don't you think, to be coming at the issue of codependency subsequent to a more obvious form of addiction with easier to identify symptoms, problems and cataclysms. Because like when you were describing that kind of obsessive relationship which you've been in, I've been in, and I think most people have at some point experienced, like I, I feel like people that have experienced it and have never identified as having a drug alcohol problem, they are not going to approach it using a 12-step or some other form of spiritual solution. They're going to think they're going to carry on with the project. Like I've got to make this work with this person or if not this person and a person that's like that person. Yes. That, that those people fall into that middle cat category, I consider it to be um, very unfortunate because these people's lives will be very difficult, but they may never come to the level of desperation where they actually have to change their trajectory. That, that project, as you put it, is going to become the thing, the focal point of their life. That could end up being a very unhealthy marriage for the next 20 or 30 yeah. years. Yeah. Children may come into that picture, even more painful. Um, the point is, is that they never come to the place where they actually have to look at themselves, where they have to tell the truth, where they have to change that bottom that we all uh, speak of with such reverence and such, it's such a sacred space where the bottom really is that place where we have to tell the truth. That's all the bottom is, is finally we've been beaten into submission to the point where we're like, okay, I'm going to actually tell the truth now. The truth is, is I don't know how to be in a relationship. The truth is, is I haven't been given the, the, the lesson plan or the teachings or the, I haven't developed myself in a way that could be in a healthy relationship. And now I'm going to have to seek help from others. How did you do it? Yes. Well, when I finally got out of that relationship, uh, it took me, I, I want to say for anybody who's listening to this, most people have been in a relationship longer than they thought they should have been. And that, that last period can be very painful. For me, that last period lasted about a year. I, I, there's this guy that walked into a 12-step meeting once. You would have thought everyone in his world had just died. There was a, a, a cloud over this guy's head. He raised his hand to share. He said, I just broke up with my girlfriend. She went out with me for six months. I went out with her for three years. <laughs> and the whole meeting just fell out laughing and, and out of understanding that phenomenon that he had hung on an extra two and a half years when someone else was finished with him. I, I hung on an extra year. When that was done, I, be perfectly honest with you, uh, two things happened that were of note. I recognized that what I had been doing in 12-step meetings was to come to the meeting and vomit forth this painful story of what was going on with me, of what she was doing to me, this story of victim. And for about 10 or 15 minutes, I'd feel better for having gotten it out. But I would leave that meeting and I would come back to myself. 
and there with myself was so much pain. And I just repeated that every day. I was trying to help people. I was sponsoring people. I was doing the steps. But somehow, the steps weren't providing me with a solution to something that at the time didn't have a name for me. I recognized something was off. And so I made a conscious, this was January 2nd, 2000. I made a conscious uh, decision to leave 12-step programs. Not because I wanted to use drugs and alcohol. I truly didn't. And, and that, that craving never returned to me, by the way. But because I needed to find another teaching and I needed to pull myself away from those programs. I spent about three years uh, pursuing different teachings and different people and therapists and different ideas. And I, I ended up very fortunately finding an extraordinary therapist and an extraordinary teacher who became my life teacher. Later on, I would return uh, to the world of the 12 steps, continue to help people there. I never left it uh, philosophically, but for a while I need to seek outside help. With, uh, Did you return to it within the framework of substance misuse uh, fellowships or did you look at um, relationship-based 12-step programs? Both. I had, I had returned to uh, substance-based programs, but I also was taking a deep look at Adult Children of Alcoholics, ACOA, which is a wonderful program that looks at this codependency piece pretty well. Uh, the Codependence Anonymous piece is, is so, was, so, was so helpful as well. So Codependence Anonymous and also ACOA. How come you didn't use them when you were first in the throes of the codependency? How come you, what was the nature of the outside? I want what I'd like to get from you, Tommy, is what within the 12 steps when applied to relationships is successful for you? And, and where do you, in your view, is there a requirement for a supplement? I think that's going to depend on the human being. But for me, I was ra- raised in 12 step universe by a group of people who honestly felt that the 12 steps could handle any problem that life could throw your way. And I think as a core foundation of recovery and as a, a path of spirituality, that path is, is very, very powerful. And I have found that it works. But beyond that, there are things in my life that needed different perspectives, different practices, different philosophies to help me move through them. There are deeper levels of detoxification that are necessary in in people's recovery than just detoxing off of drugs and alcohol. So, yes, I, I would agree. And for me, I would see that as a sort of a component of steps three, seven, and 11. I would go like free handing over power, seven, humbly asking to be helped, 11, increasing conscious contact. I would see them all as detoxification from self-centeredness. And so what what aspects of uh, the steps worked around codependency for you? And, and, and what specifically did you import in your own um, uh, curation of a recovery system? Yes. Well, the, the steps themselves, of course, well, depending on, on which program you might be participating in, the steps themselves don't address codependency. What they do is they tell you where to go in a way to address codependency. So you brought up three and seven and, and 11. If I'm asking, uh, so in my relationship with God or universe or higher power, or if I'm an atheist or agnostic person, and, and I'm just trying to relate to, say, the quantum physical world, I might ask a question of the universe and the question might be, okay, 
I'm feeling pain around relationship. I don't know what to do, but I would like some guidance on this. Because I've done the 12 steps to the best of my ability, first of all, it's opened up my heart and my mind so I could ask such a question. So there's a level of humility humility that's been established that would allow me to ask that question. Next, we have to enter this question about intuition and, and, and what do we need to do to intuitively make right decisions. So I could have kept going to 12-step rooms every day and doing what I had been doing, but my intuition told me I need help from somebody who understands this deeper issue. I would say it was because of the 12 steps that I was able to develop that clarity of thought that showed me I need something else. Rather than using the 12 steps as a cure-all for anything that life could give me, the 12 steps provided me with intuition and a foundation of recovery that would allow me to seek outside help in, in a multitude of directions whenever I needed it. That was the most powerful thing. I didn't know that at the time. But now I look back and I'm like, oh, the development of intuition, which by the way, yoga builds upon, uh, is is the key to make the right choices. So with the, uh, regard to the uh, additional things, are you specifically talking about forms of yoga and meditation? Therapy. Therapeutic reality uh, is vast. So we're looking at uh, the body. So there's somatic therapeutic modalities that, that help the body to release stored tension, stored emotion. Uh, we say we'll get the issues out of our tissues, right? Is there some science to that? Like There's that a, we hold tension in, I know like we can, I can reckon, it feels true to me that I hold tension in my body. Even if you were to ask me, where's, where's the wound, Russell? I sort of feel like yes. here in the stomach. But is it, is there sort of, you know, like a materialistic biochemical stuff yeah. around that? Well, yes. Uh, well, we can look at the work of, for example, Peter Levine, who's an extraordinary man who's done a lot of work around trauma and the release of trauma and how trauma uh, presents itself as stuck energy in the body. Beyond, there's, there's a lot of science is the, is, the, is the answer to that question, but beyond the science, you have 5,000 to 10,000 years of human experience of people who have directly experienced stuckness in an area in their body, and they've done certain work, uh, emotionally speaking, that has released that stuckness. And you know, f- I, I would be at the top of that list of people who have developed tension patterns in the body that were not related to how I was mechanically moving or to a structural abnormality in my body, but stuckness. What is one that you had and got rid of? Well, I was nearly crippled uh, in 2003, and uh, it just so happens. And uh, what had happened was I, I had so much tension and so much stress and still behaving in addictive ways as I'm unraveling this codependent piece that we spoke about, which extends itself into money and purpose and abundance. Uh, gambling addiction is a part of my story. As well. Oh, absolutely. And this is a point, you're 12, 13 years clean at this point. That's and right. You're crippling yourself with tension. That's correct. You're gambling That's like right. mad. There's a mad project to win back someone you shouldn't have even been with in the first place. Correct. What the hell's going on, Tommy? Yes. I'm being shown the places that I haven't fixed yet. In every case. And, you know, I say to people laughingly all the time, I know we're, we're just 2020, but in 2003, you wouldn't have been coming to me for advice. 
unless you wanted to learn just how, the fundamentals of getting sober. You might have come to me for that. But in terms of resolving the deeper issues, I hadn't resolved the deeper issues yet. Why this is significant is because I look into the, the halls of the 12 steps and many, many other forms of recovery, and people have not yet resolved the deeper issues. I don't, that's not a, a judgment or a condemnation. I was there myself. I recognize the problem, and there has to be deeper work done in order for those wonderful people who went through all the work to get three, five, seven, nine, eleven years sober, in order for them to experience the freedom that I've now finally been able to attain. Because I look, I, I both agree with you, but also would like to challenge some of the, some of the things you're saying. Because I um, feel like that the in my own life. The 12 steps can encompass all potential ancillary growth. I do have additional outside therapy. I do practice yoga and meditation and I do um, require a great deal more help. I'm still pretty savagely mentally ill. But like I, I also feel that I can see from my understanding of the 12 steps that it's kind of inferring within it that that might be necessary. Like it does even say in there, you know, there's some people who are going to need all sorts of different medical help and we realize we only know a little and there's going to be more stuff going to be revealed. But I still sort of see it somehow as housed by the basic ideas of admitting there's a problem, seriously inventorying, making amends where necessary, staying present in the moment, increasing conscious contact with God and being of service to other people as a sort of a doming experience, even though I know that sometimes I'll like, you know, like I, even with something as specific as Brazilian jiu-jitsu, I'm like, oh, I need mentorship and sponsorship in jiu-jitsu. I ain't going to get that, you know, like sort of by going to a 12-step fellowship meeting. But I will apply the principles of humility, surrender, gratitude, like, you know, in those areas. And so, like, because because you're a yoga teacher, is it like that? Do you think that what needs, like, the, the things that need to be resolved are like trauma held in the body, which there's nothing in the 12 steps so i spoke to gabor mate once and he said that the tw one of the areas he said that the 12 steps doesn't acknowledge is, is trauma but I, even that i would say what about four and five you know of course it could come out more you know steps four and five the inventory and process and the sh and sharing it with a, another person who's done the 12 steps before like you know for me i think well if that as long as that person knows enough and as long as that person can go deep enough See, it's interesting because, of course, it's not a professional endeavor, the 12 steps. So there's sort of evident limitation as well as great uh, grace within that. But like, is it? What, do you think that as we move further along the path, specificity emerges that, that requires very particular types of treatment? Well, I think that if you had presented the concepts that we're talking about now, for example, codependency to me, in the first week or first year or maybe even for several years of my recovery, I simply wouldn't have been ready for it. No. It wouldn't have made sense to me. The thing that made sense to me at the time was very, as I look back at it now, it seems surface, although it's very profound at that moment. And the profound nature of it is simply, I used to be someone who couldn't think of, who couldn't get through a day without thinking about using drugs and alcohol. And what I was trying to do at that moment was to become a human being <laughs> who no longer thought about using drugs and alcohol, but could send my creative possibilities in another direction. That was the extent of what I was trying to do is I'm, I seem plagued and put upon by my mind. I'd like that to change. And so it did change. After that change, now I'm in a new level of consciousness. I'm in a new place. I'm more aware of things than I used to be. 
from that more aware place than I used to be, new lesson plans, new truths, new ideas present themselves, and it's never ending. So for you, for example, I would ask you, do you think and see and perceive things today the same way that you did when you got sober on day one? No. You've been through a process, a tremendous process of transformation. And that, that was predicated based on the teachings and the, the, the time-tested power of going through the spiritual experience of the 12 steps. That was the foundation. I feel like initially the abstinence, I think the abstinence itself, like you've indicated, creates incredible conditions for change. Then the next level of recognizing what the emotional matrix that underwrote the emotion, the uh, behaviors was. I think that's incredible. But, but you know, I, I, this is a genuine, actually, process of investigation with you because I, I actually am, I, my sense is, is that as a template, as a modality, there's the potential for it all in there. But like, it does require specific specificity, but part of I feel what, what's beautiful about the twelve steps is it's like, oh, you're a person that's from this background who identifies in this way. You probably need to go that path. Oh, you're a person that's this background. Knows, you know that we're all going to go in different different directions. But I still feel like it's domed within the because I think the principal idea is let go of the yourself and surrender yourself to a higher form of consciousness or a greater form of consciousness. Mm-hmm. I should say. And and so we we absolutely are on the same page. You and I, uh, I like the way you put it as uh, it's domed within that, that I say to people, the 12 steps are in my DNA now. Mm. It's not something that, uh, I don't think of, you know, there's nothing about the 12 steps that bothers me the way language especially bothers some people. And we can talk about language cause that's very important, but the 12 steps are in me, meaning the, the revelatory elements that come clear for me in going through that process, are with me now. So the ideas of being humble, the ideas of being open-minded, the idea of being radically self-honest, being able to tell the difference between true and false, um, being of service to other people, being in practices that improve conscious contact, which to me is an expansion of consciousness, which is where as a yoga teacher, of course, that's where I live. That's where I want to be. I want to be in that expansion. So the 12 steps did that. The path of yoga continues that. But it's not as if here, over here are the 12 steps and over here is the path of yoga. In, in fact, I tell people, if you're really on a 12-step path, you're a yogi. And they're like, but I don't get on a yoga mat. It doesn't matter. The path of yoga is a path from dark to light, from less knowing to more knowing, from smaller awareness to greater awareness. The 12-step path is a path of yoga. And if people can begin to see that, they will understand that, yeah, you're going to just apply whatever supplemental, supplemental elements to it that you need as you move forward your evolutionary path. Yes, because the first thing it's doing is inviting you to transition from identifying your solution as drugs or an alcohol or codependency. And I think the majority of people, even people that haven't experienced extreme forms of addiction that have necessitated abstinence. I think that my sense and my investigation reveals or suggests that 
well, what is the material world? What is consumer capitalism other than the belief that through attachment we can resolve these inner spiritual issues? One of the things that interest me, Tommy, I wonder if I get your perspective on this. I feel that it's fun. It's fundamentally we have these primordial d- uh, systems like of desire, appetite for social status, for competition, for procreation, for food, etc. And these these evolved for conditions very different from the ones we live in now and then we don't live it and now we don't live in a neutral society we live kind of in a bizarre captivity where we're continually advertised that where our desires are stimulated continually and where our fears are constantly stoked so you know we've got this primal setting like you know that we're trying to deal with we've got these external modalities that are very manipulative and over stimulating and I, I feel that both the 12 steps and as you say the path of a yogi is a way of managing these own primordial desires and these external influences and finding some place of truth or at least connection within those two competing and forces yes uh along with a community of people to help you along. Yeah, because alone it's too much. I don't know how anyone could do that alone. Uh, yeah, so what we need uh, to, to, to combat what's coming at us and to essentially transcend it is we need a very powerful set of practices and philosophies and community that help us along through that. Interesting that this group of people who are struggling with addiction, generally speaking, are very sensitive beings. So not only are we being bombarded, but we're even that much more sensitive. We're aware of it. We feel it. We may feel it as intense sadness or loneliness, or we may feel a sense of disconnectedness, or I don't belong anywhere here, or it might just be, wow, I'm, uh, I'm so deeply moved by the suffering of other people. I just, I despair of it ever, you know, making progress on this point. So we're sensitive people and we need a program, we need a practice, we need a, a way forward, and we have to come together in community. And I guess in yoga, you would say the term for this is how to be in the world, but not of it. You play the game. You're in the world. You're, you're fully aware of, of the, the vulnerability that you have to advertising and, and, and to other psychological elements that are around you and impacting you all day long. But at the same time, you're so aware of it, there's a, there's a detachment from it. You're like, okay, I'll play the game of Tommy Rosen. I'll play the game of Tommy Rosen. I know how Tommy Rosen would act here. I'll do that thing, but I'm not going to get too caught up in it. Do you understand what I mean? Yeah, except I do get caught up. Like, I'm pretty good, but I, I vacillate quite a lot. I get to points where I think, wow, I can see this is that this is a beautiful play, a charade, that, that all this apparent separateness is oneness. Like I can go to... A, you know, attend a, a group of, you know, people in recovery and meditate. I can do have like a wonderful yogic experience. I think this is it. This is the connection. Then I get in traffic and I'm like, oh, fuck you. <laughs> like, yeah, it's like, oh, so like I, you know, like the, the grid, the, the magnetism of the former me, whether that's exhibited in sort of a, like, you know, sort of sexual impulse or anger impulse, it still feels very sort of resonant. Whoever that, whatever that illusion was, it was a powerful one. Yeah. It, what you're saying is so critically important. It's it's really this natural progression. So anytime we come into a new way of thinking, let's just take the person who decides, okay, I drink too much. I'm not even going to use the word alcoholic, but I can see that drinking is affecting my life negatively. I'd like to stop. Yeah. Okay. So that person stops drinking. 
Now, all of a sudden, that person is going to experience, in those very next few days, they're going to experience a number of different emotions and experiences. One thing they're going to be thinking is, wow, I seem to be incredibly low energy. They're going to be real, like their energy is going to be low and they're going to be missing something, something that's been there for them. On a chemical note, what they're missing is sugar because in the form of alcohol, they've been putting large amounts of sugar in their body and now they're not. They're also going to be missing their community. If I go to the bar, I know I'm going to drink. Everybody I know goes to the bar. I can't go to the bar. Therefore, I'm going to be alone for a while. So there's a, a sense of loneliness. They're going to feel so many different things over that next few days that if they just stay by themselves and experience all these emotions, it isn't going to work out. All the time, they've got a vacillation taking place, like what you're describing. You've got new consciousness, meaning the consciousness of somebody who doesn't drink alcohol anymore and who is content with that. So you're messing around with that consciousness. Here I am. I've let go of alcohol. Now I'm in this new place. It's very natural. It's In fact, I don't know anybody who doesn't do this. When you come to the new consciousness, there's a vacillation back and forth, up and down. We call it, when the person goes back to a self-harming behavior, we call it relapse. But really what that is, is sometimes part of a natural vacillation. I've tried this. I don't know how to, how to steady, be steady in this new consciousness. I'm going to drop back down. Okay, that doesn't go so well. Come back again. I'm going to try here. Now, if you have practices and teachers and a community, they will help you to solidify yourself in that new level of consciousness. Now you're there. That's when you stop having cravings, for example, which for any alcoholic or addict, that's an unbelievable day when they wake up and realize, I don't actually think about using all the time anymore. In fact, it's rare. So they've now established themselves and they're steady at this new level of consciousness. Well, let's just say that's stage one recovery. There's another hundred or thousand or, or million stages beyond that. And what you're describing is exactly what happens at every new level of consciousness, no matter what you're facing or what you're trying to get to. My teacher would say, we're all beginners to our next step. Where every one of us is a beginner to our next step. On the yoga mat, if I'm trying to touch my toes and I can't touch my toes, that's just where I'm at today. Someday I'd like to be able to touch my toes. Someone else who can touch their toes, now they're trying to go even deeper than that. They're a beginner to that next move. So the question is, how do we get exposed to new ideas and a new level of consciousness, meaning seeing things differently? And then the next question is, and this is different skill set, how do I embody practices and philosophies that will help me to build solidity at the new level of consciousness. Mm. You can see how that's a, a good exhibition, beautifully explained, by the way, the, uh, of uh, steps one through three, that's sort of like the one, okay, I don't know what I'm doing. Two, okay, I see there could be another way. Three, I don't know how to sustain it. You tell me how to sustain it. Give me the practices, the community, the guidance in order to sustain it. With me, like as an, both as an, uh, as an addict or recovering addict or whatever the hell it is I'm now, like it feels like, <clears throat> 
continually that the spectrum and range has been broad. Like there are certain situations that I can be in. I don't know. I sometimes think that we would like, we're people that should have been tapped on the shoulder by a Tibetan monk at four years old. And they go, come this way. The material world's never going to work for you. You need to come live with us in the temple. You know, because like me, when I'm in certain spiritual, when I'm in the right environment, which is basically unbridled adulation, <laughs> then I, I'm such a nice guy. <laughs> like on, a, on a stage in front of a lot of people, people being grateful to me. There is no me then. I am only flow. I am only flow. But what I've always found hard is to house that. Sometimes to come, even to come down from that experience. I've done some, you know, like I, when I do live work now, I'm thinking about these spiritual principles. I'm trying to convey it. I'm trying to get out of the way and just allow it to come, as I'm sure you do as a teacher. Just like think, oh, it will come through me. It will come through me. I do it and I do it. And then, like, you know, then for me, like, uh, like I've, one of my mentors says, for you, the spiritual life, no problem. For you, the, li- the real world <laughs> is the problem. How do you now, you're going to have to deal with people, their needs, their requirements, your own shortcomings, your own failings. You know, it's like uh, I, part of me yearns for or sometimes think requires a monastic kind of life where I'm simply not confronted with these unnatural influences such as sitting in traffic being confronted with you know semi-pornographic imagery (laughs) you know I I, I need a monastery yes well you can take uh, respite at periods of time in your life to get perspective but the simple fact is is you're in this frame right this is where we've ended up isn't it Tommy you're in this physical frame and so you have spirit and you have the physical and it's a contentious marriage, really. That's the contentious marriage. There's, there's a part of you and I and almost all of us feel, and we can't shake this, that it should be different. That this should be some other way. Uh, what I sh- is that feeling? <laughs> I should not be triggered by semi-pornographic images. I should not be triggered in traffic. I mean, every time I get online at the DMV, get on customer service with Frontier Communications. I mean, all of my yoga flies out the window. I recognize it as part of who I am. I can, I can gesture myself forward for grace. I can try. And when I fall short of that, I just smile and I just say, you know, <laughs> I'm doing the absolute best I can within the chemical reality of this five sensory nervous system, mm. which has been tuned a certain kind of way. And my job is to continue to try to tune it into greater and greater experiences of ease and, and grace while not judging myself when I fall short. Well, that's pretty cool. I'm trying to do that. <laughs> Two things I wanted to say is that, do you know that dude, Andy Puddicombe, who started the app Headspace, mm-hmm. he came on this podcast one time and he said that he once, like, you know, he was off in a monastery, wasn't he? And he said that he once met like, a 17 year old monk and he could tell that even though this kid it was just a kid a 17 he was like no this kid like had it he was just beaming god energy straight out of him and i was like wow i'd find that so hard to look at a little kid and think wow it doesn't matter that i've done all this stuff you know i've been through all of the yoga all the meditation i've been tried so hard i don't look at porn anyway like some little beaming 17 year old and like and then i remember like when i for the i guess it might have been one of the first you know inverted comma spiritual people i ever met radhanat swami who's also been in this podcast so i know you know like and when I first met him, I was maybe just coming out of drinking and using, maybe still drinking and using at Back to Devanta Manor in uh, Watford, England. George Harrison got for them, God rest his soul. And like, um, 
when I see Radnat Swami, I remember telling a mate later, this is how I described him, I goes, he was like there was nothing you could say to him that would take him off of who he was being. Like you couldn't go, well, mate, some people are fucking with your car or oh, these <laughs> women really fancy you. And you're, what, really? <laughs> and like dry, everything would drop. It's like, like to live in a space where there isn't anything. Like, you know, and another one of those things I got thrown at me was like, you know, like this Amma's ashram, one of her monks or swamis goes to me, you know, the material world's got nothing else to give you now it can only take from you and I thought oh I don't like that but then later realized oh I have everything I need my life is abundant what do you um you know what do we do those of us that are in the frame of living in the material world those of us that are having the challenge of dealing with our own biochemistry in the five century unit that we find ourselves in how do we continue to usher ourselves forward what what systems do you suggest it's well it's going to come down to practice and awareness um and also acceptance I'd love to tell you a quick story uh mm. Uh, one of my favorite people in the world is uh, named Anand, Anand Merotra. He's in India. Super wise channel, this guy, and sweet and, and an incredible human being, really. And I said to him once, I said, Anand, I talk to you a lot about addiction. You, you help me. You counsel me. Have you experienced addiction? He said, you see, I grew up around people who were centered in themselves, totally non-neurotic. I burst out laughing because I was thinking about my parents who didn't fit that description. <laughs> and I thought actually in my childhood, everybody who came through my home, everybody, including my teachers, my school teachers, my friends, my parents, their friends, family, everybody was really quite a bit up in their head and neurotic at the very least. Every human being, I, I don't remember meeting too many centered comfortable people. But Anand was saying, I never was exposed to neurotic behavior or people in my childhood. From a very young age, I was raised by a master, someone who had figured it out and someone who had that thing that you're describing in that 17-year-old monk. And so, no, he said, I've never experienced addiction. And what's important about that for me is to understand that I don't have recollection of choosing my parents as some spiritual people talk, talk about. Oh, you chose your parents in the spiritual realm. Okay. I don't remember that. I don't have that kind of sight or vision. But I'll just say that I ended up with the parents that I ended up with. And, and God rest both their souls. They're, they were incredible people. They had unbelievable exuberance for life. And they also had their challenges emotionally and otherwise, as have I. They were neurotic people. They were, they were growing up and they were dealing with a whole bunch of things that they didn't have tools and solutions for at the time. And so, yes, I did grow up with addiction. It was in front of me. I learned it. There was a chemical reality. I learned it. Uh, I didn't have the tools. I didn't know what to do. I learned it. And yeah, it was my thing in this life to figure all that out and to get now as far as I can possibly get in this life which is not going to be what that 17-year-old monk is going to reach to. It's going to be what I'm able to reach to. My job is not to become perfect. My job is to become the perfect expression of, of this soul in this body. That's my job. So that's one story I wanted to tell you. There's one more story. On the topic of getting knocked off one's perch, I was in India and I was about to go teach. It was one of the bigger classes I've ever taught in my life, maybe 1,000 or 1,200 people there. 
big class right on the, the banks of the, the Ganges River, right there on the Ganga, big power. And there I am in India, and I wasn't feeling very well. I actually, like, really not physically well and, and uh, had a bit of a fever, a headache. And this woman came out of nowhere, this, uh, this other teacher, who quite inconsiderately said to me, it's really great to see you this year. You don't look well. You look really bad, actually. I'm about to go on and teach. And she knew I was about to go on and teach. And I thought to myself, who would say such a thing? <laughs> Why would you time that? You know, like, let me know later that you didn't like how I looked. So I ran over to the mirror, my wife, to see how I looked. And I said, am I okay? She said, you're okay. Go out and teach. Tune in and teach. <laughs> so I tuned in and I teached. That woman knocked me so far off my perch into so much insecurity, so much concern, so much fear, and so much worry. That night, I went to a ceremony, and they were going to honor a few people at the ceremony. And the Swami, who I love and revere, a man who just embodies so much love and so much care, the father figure that anybody would want to have, he started to speak, and he said, you know, we want to honor somebody in, the, in this world who's doing incredible work in the field of addiction. And I was like, oh, my God. Who's here that they're going to honor? You know, who else is here? And he went on and on about this person and, and just the most beautiful things were said, these beautiful accolades about this person doing great work in the world. And then they said, Tommy Rosen, would you come up here and be recognized? <laughs> I don't blush easily, but I, I, a rush of red ran through my body. And I, I was so shocked. I, I just, it caught me completely off guard. I kneeled down in front of the Swami. And I looked up at him and he put a, a, a necklace over my head, a, a mala necklace. And he said, he hit me on my chin, just gently and, and lovingly. He just sort of picked my head up. He said, I'm so proud of you. And all of a sudden, all was right in the world. And I recognized this woman's comment earlier knocked me off my perch. His praise also knocked me off my perch that how would I ever come to a place where whether someone gave me praise or someone tried to tear me down, that I would still remain just in center. Don't get me wrong, his love was so beautiful and we need to be recognized and it was so healing in that moment. But I also recognized like, oh my God, the feeling of that praise is something that I have always in my life been looking for. So that was very, very powerful for me. Yeah, it's a powerful grid that, I mean, to get that kind of approval because it feels like it's coming directly from God. And also I recognize that in sort of customarily I've fueled performative action where I need to hold myself before a large group of people. It's difficult not to use ego fuel. I think sometimes I'm like one of them hybrid cars that flicks between the old fuel of the ego and the new sort of fuel of the higher power or God consciousness or whatever. And I, it, I'm so surprised sometimes by how little it takes for people to, you know, for me to become furious or for me to become engorged with ego. Um, I was thinking while you were saying that of the sort of people that I've encountered that seem to have a, a kind of equanimity regardless of external stimuli. 
uh, my supposition is that that place that we access meditatively for them is home the same way as anecdotally that is it Babaji who who um Ram Das and them gave him acid when they were over in India and he was like yeah this is what I feel like all the time <laughs> and it didn't Neem affect Karoli him Baba. Who, who is it Neem Karoli Baba Neem Karoli Baba mm. like thank you like that that you know that famous sort of countercultural anecdote demonstrates that you can achieve those psychedelic states through other means, and you can indeed achieve that connection. So that we're not out in the world begging, bowl in hand, waiting for approval, disappointed when we don't get it. Oh man, it's a it's a tough one, huh? But it's it, it is a tough one, and it's also sort of the way it is. So we we understand again, we are where we are. We should accept where we are and we should move forward accordingly. And that's, that's, that's enough. Like that's good enough. The joy and the bliss of life is simply getting to be you and getting to be free wherever you are. That 17 year old monk. I've made myself angry remembering him. You got, you got pissed off, did you? Yeah, like, oh, he's 17, he's just a kid. And yeah, right. If he was here now, we'd be all feel all reverent. And that. <laughs> that's exactly right. We would. Because he he had a, he had something that we that we all recognize as incredibly valuable, beyond beyond fame and likes and follows and and social media, is he has a sense of contentment and presence, and that's what should be revered. Uh, and we and we when we get around it, our language changes. We don't curse as much. Yeah. We you know behave a certain kind of way, and it's it's like oh my god, I I really have to pay attention here. Yeah, like we know mm. it when we see it, don't we? Like it's that's like that, that suggests that it is not just an abstract conceptual thing, unlike enlightenment, but an essential thing like water. It's something elemental, something that we know when it's there. Having said that, we once did a podcast with these lads, the happy pair, these Irish vegan sort of cooks. They're very sort of male in the most beautiful way, very sort of a bullion. And hey, what's going on, Russell? Like really playful and joyful and acrobatic. And we did one podcast with them and one with Radhanath Swami. And like they were, like the way they behaved in those sort of, there was an interim period between. And they were like, oh, look at yourself. All right, there. Do you want? Do you, would you like to see a handstand? And they were too. I felt they were too physical with him. Like I reckon, if they met that monk, they wouldn't be cursing, but they might touch him or lift him up or like sort of juggle, <laughs> juggle him with their feet. <laughs> like the, the reverence. I, I, interest, are you interested in what our man, um, who's the great psychonaut, um, Terence McKenna, says that you know, like the this kind of uh, holy reverence, this sort of gentleness of sort of, I think he's talking about monotheistic faiths really, but perhaps religion in general. He said like, you know, one thing we can be certain of, he said, if there is a God, this thing is a powerful force. He goes, whatever it is I'm experiencing, says Terence McKenna, through these plant medicines, that shit don't need you to approach it gently. Yeah. It's like a yeah. <laughs> roaring, all-encompassing God. Yes. Well, uh, you know, this brings up a really important uh, discussion, which is, I wish I had, I guess, just a nickel for every person, especially in, in 12-step programs, who has come up to me and said, what do you think of ayahuasca? What do you think about microdosing mushrooms? What do you think about psychedelics in general? And especially since um, Michael Pollan's book came out, you know, mm. and uh, I mean, what an unbelievable time we're in, you know, cannabis is becoming legal throughout the United States. Um, that presents some interesting challenges for parents these days and, and for kids as well. Uh, but what an interesting uh, time we're living in where people are, you know, people are curious to, to find the solution. What do you think about it? Mm, about psychedelics? Yeah. 
in sort of in recovery and as a, a fast track to awakening? Uh, anything on this planet uh, from the natural realm is has relevance under certain situations for certain people at certain times. The question is to know when, for whom, how would that look? Uh, there are people who will not only not benefit from psychedelic use, but could hurt themselves. Do you think so? There are some people. people that are mentally fragile. Oh, definitely. Oh, I've, I mean, I've seen it. Uh, yeah, I mean, for anybody to say anything is right for everybody. Yeah, that's pretty that, That's as dogmatic as anything else. Yeah. What so, do you think about it in relation to recovery, Tommy? Like, you know, because obviously it's something that I've considered. I know a lot of, sort of great teachers and cool people that do it. And, yes. and I sort of, but like also some of my upstream fellas in recovery are like, eh, yes. eh, not for you, Sonny Jim. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in, in the mechanism by which we can, can learn and grow. If, if a human being who struggles with addiction uh, looks to something in the outside world to solve the inside world problem, I still feel like fundamentally there might be a challenge there. I can't say what the the outcome would be for that person. And I, since I have no direct experience with, oh, ayah with, with ayahuasca. You don't do it. You oh, no. Do it. Oh, no. For you, no. You can get there, get there. Like, because the Maharishi said it's like bashing down the doors of heaven or whatever. It, it's, I would just simply say that if, if I was in pain or in some kind of suffering that couldn't be solved any other way, and I had absolutely exhausted every other resource, spiritually, uh, yogically, and otherwise, then I might consider some other things. What do we do as human beings? We try to solve problems. But I just don't have a problem. So <laughs> that's nice. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, you know, don't get me wrong. I, I mean, I, I, I have my stresses and my challenges of being human like anybody else. But the people who ask me, who want to know, what do you think of ayahuasca? What they're really asking me is, I feel like there's somewhere I could be, and I'm not there yet, mm. and I'm aware of it, and I'm wondering if this thing could maybe help me get there either at all or perhaps faster than the current method that I've tried. Like if ayahuasca had been around when I had my codependent bottom at nine years sober, that might have been a thought on my mind because I was in so much pain and I didn't yet have an answer. Thank God for me, I found a teacher and I found an answer in yoga. Uh, I, I strongly advocate for it as a first measure. Learn to practice and learn to meditate and, and start to clear your mind and start to see your patterns and heal from them. And if all else were to fail, you could look to the world of, of plant medicine and, and that could be helpful for you. Uh, the thing I tell people in recovery though is mindful, be mindful of starting a process of thinking. Like I'm not trying to start thinking about whether or not I should do psychedelics. And if I get into that process of thinking, or if I do it and it's a positive experience, I can, I can guarantee you for sure I'm coming for it again. Yeah. There's not going to be one time for me. That, that's just, that wouldn't make any sense to me. If you had a positive experience with it, why would you stop at one? And then you just wouldn't. Then were you just <laughs> you just wouldn't do you it. Just carry on doing it till you're dead, and or something then, happens to stop you. That's exactly right. So because I know of that mechanism of thinking, I tell people in recovery: be mindful of what kind of thinking you're going to start. If you start some momentum around 
reaching out to any substance. That's good insight, man. You could you could get yourself into real trouble. Yeah. What do you think I should do? What do you think I should do? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I have so much to tell you, Russell. <laughs> I think you should keep doing exactly what you're doing. Uh, I think you're... Uh, I think you're so on the right track in so many ways. I mean that sincerely. I, I have actually uh, watched uh, hours upon hours of you speaking and lecturing in different formats um, on television or on YouTube. And I've really taken the time to, to take in what you're putting out. And I have a great reverence for it. Oh, wow. Thank and, you. And a great appreciation for it. Um, you know, yeah, I, I don't. I don't have any any commentary for you whatsoever, other than just be you and and enjoy yourself and surround yourself with teachers for the moments when you're not sure what to do and and everything's going to work out, you know. But I I would say for this this um this psychedelic piece, uh, I I interviewed Ramdas and and God, I'm remembering him and uh, what a wonderful man he was and teacher. And he said um, he asked me during the interview. He said you take psychedelics? And I said, yeah, a lot. And he said, do you think that led you into addiction? And I said, no, I don't see them as the same thing. He said, okay. Because he said, for me, when I took psychedelics at the beginning, I felt like they put me in the room with Jesus Christ. <laughs> he said that. He said, the problem was that at the end of the night, I always got kicked out of the room. It was like a trailer to a movie that you never get to see the full movie. And it became incredibly frustrating. He said, now I'm in the room all the time. And then he, he goes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, just like that. And so maybe you want to see the trailer to a movie. Mm-hmm. In, my, in my much, much younger years, it was helpful for me to get out of the oppressive childhood that I had been a part of. It helped me in certain ways that I, at the time, had no other thing for it uh, to, to, to solve these problems. I didn't have somebody take me under their wing as a master and help guide my mind. Uh, so that was there for me, and, and it was helpful. Maybe you want to see the trailer to a movie. But I urge people, and I advocate for meditation and yoga, because you want to be there all the time, and you really, truly can be. So. What a beautiful message. Thanks, Tommy. You're a great teacher. You're a fantastic guest. I'm so grateful to you for coming on this and doing this with me. Thank you, Cheers, Russell. Mate. What a joy. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you for listening to Under the Skin with Tommy Rosen. Let me know what you thought of it. Insta me. You can tag me there. Or our Russell Brand. Tweet me at Rusty Rockets. I mean, hashtag. I mean, look, you know what to do, don't you? If you've understood social media at this point in your life, you know. And I'd, probably it's not for you. I mean, a lot of it's bad for you. We know that. You can also follow me on TikTok now at Russell Brand or LinkedIn. I'm Russell Brand there as well. I mean, I'm basically Russell Brand. Remember, I'm coming to Australia, New Zealand, and Canada with my new show, Recovery Live. Tickets are available now. Go to russellbrand.com. Also, remember, all these LA dates are taking place in February. Go to russellbrand.com for them as well. There's some interesting stuff going on. I'd love to see you there. Sign up to my mailing list on russellbrand.com for exclusive access and remember to send emails to us on help and hello if you want to communicate with us why don't you go back and listen to fern cotton and wendy mandy some of the great luminary episodes of under the skin keep checking my youtube channel daily for new videos and thank you for listening to under the skin from luminary media from me russell brand bye bye